and welcome to The Aside, a podcast for teachers and students of drama. I'm Nick Waxman and today you'll be treated to part two of our interview with John Bell, director of the opera Madame Butterfly by Puccini, which is presented by Opera Australia. This production is on the Unit 4 Theatre Studies playlist for 2018, and so the questions aim to assist students and teachers in understanding John Bell's vision and direction. This is part two of the interview, so please do go back and listen to part one for more information if you have not yet done so. Please note that this was not recorded in our studio, and so the audio quality is slightly lower than usual. But please do enjoy part two of our interview with John Bell. You will be touring Madame Butterfly to a range of different venues. How will that work with the staging you've created? We have a set that is quite self-contained. Um, it's that the space is quite um, defined and it has its own lighting rig and lighting tower attached. So wherever we put the set up, it could be in the open air, it could be inside a big shed, it could be in a theatre. The stage and the lighting rig is complete in itself. So that means we don't have to spend hours relighting or hanging lights or changing the, the stage around, it's all there. Uh, we can take it and put it on the stage of a much bigger theatre and it's still quite self-contained and uh, that makes for a lot of um, uh, ease when you're touring a show like this. Your plan is to include groups of 20 local children from each of the areas you're touring to. How will you incorporate them into the staging for each performance? Yes, um, this isn't my my responsibility, but there is a music director uh, who will um, go ahead of the company, um, audition and choose children from each community and then teach them what they're going to sing and also whatever choreography is involved, uh, which will be quite minimal. We can't get too fancy with this because as you get into town and you only got so many hours to get the show on. So we'll keep it as simple as we can and yet make them feel included and, uh, and busy in the piece. Um, as I said, they'll come up at the very beginning of the, of the piece to welcome Pinkerton into the, the town, um, carrying his luggage for him, etc. Um, and he'll probably throw candy into the crowd, you know, to keep them all, keep them all occupied. They'll come to the wedding and they'll watch the wedding and they'll react to certain things that happen, especially when the Bonds arrives and denounces Butterfly, they'll have to react to that. They'll be singing certain little bits of the wedding scene. And then the main thing they'll do is the, the famous humming chorus, which happens at night and Butterfly is waiting for Pinkerton to come back and you hear this, this humming chorus in the background which signifies the passing of the night time. So I'll do a little kind of procession of people carrying lanterns um, and I'll teach the children, or the music teacher will teach the children that chorus, which is quite a tricky piece to hum. It's, um, it needs a lot of breath control and uh, it's uh, quite tricky even for mature opera singers. So, We'll probably do a rather simplified version of that for the children to learn and sing. You have recontextualised the piece to post-World War II Nagasaki. Will that recontextualization be shown through any design or stagecraft elements? The set will um, be the set of um, pre-war Japan. Um, it's a, a very typical little Japanese house because the libretto actually describes the house when they come in the um, the... the guy who's, um, who's renting the house out to Pinkerton says, these are the sliding doors, this, this is where you, where you sleep, this is where you eat, etc. So he, he's defining the space. Um, and it needs to be um, an old-fashioned, typical Japanese house. 
and it's only when Pinkerton arrives and he's in sort of American army uniform we realise where we are. It's, it's, it's now 1945 and um, um, Butterfly and the rest of the Japanese people are still wearing traditional Japanese clothes. Um, the the um, marriage broker is also the, you know, the, the guy who takes the money for the house. He's half dressed in, uh, in Japanese um, costume, half Western. He's, he's transitioning between, you know, he wants to be a, a Westerner. So he's got a bowler hat and a jacket, but he's got real old fashioned Japanese trousers and shoes and so on. So he's, he's Mr. Half and Half. Um, and then in the second half of the piece, when Pinkerton goes away and leaves Butterfly on her own, and she's waiting for him for years to come back, she's there with her baby waiting for him. Uh, and so she redecorates the house a little bit, puts up an American flag and uh, American photographs and posters and so on to try and make it feel more American. And she herself is in more American clothes. So she's trying to be a, a good American wife. And of course, the tragedy is he, he, when he comes back, he's got a new wife with him. What would you say are the major themes or the major theme of Madame Butterfly, in your opinion? Well, I think uh, the tragedy is that of a young person being um, being abused, being um, badly treated um, by uh, by somebody else. In this case, she's a, a young Japanese girl. She's um, sixteen. She's been trained as a as a, a geisha uh, hostess and dancer, um, and he's a, a much older uh, American guy. And uh, he simply makes use of her while he's there in Japan. He uh, he takes her on as a as his wife, but really in the back of his mind, this is only a this is only a, a passing whim, and he's got his heart set on having an American wife um, eventually. Um, but she's she's fully convinced that he loves her and that now she is his wife and they have a future together. So it's the tragedy of someone being deceived and abused like that and and used. Um, and then discarded. And I guess um, she's such a strong character that she chooses to kill herself rather than put up with that humiliation. So I suppose the themes are, you know, um, real love as opposed to sort of um, abusive um, usage and um, the strength of character of the, of the, main, uh, the main, the heroine of the piece. And also I think Pacini's uh, commenting pretty savagely about colonialism because um, even when he was writing it at the turn of the century, he was still commenting on the way the Americans um, treat the rest of the world. In Pinkerton's one of his early arias, I am a Yankee rover and I go where I want and I drop my anchor where I want and I use people as I want because I'm just a good old Yankee rover. It's pretty kind of condemning sort of monologue. And I think that's Pacini's attitude towards not just uh, the American, but any kind of colonial exploitation of the local population. And, and now is the time of the 50th anniversary of the 1967 referendum, perhaps to be talking about a show like this. Oh, uh, oh absolutely. absolutely. And all kinds of colonial um, you know, assumptions and, uh, and use, of, use of people. Yeah, it's a, it's, in that sense, it's, it's a, a, a timeless piece. The message is still loud and clear and as important as it was when it was written. What do you think have been your strongest directorial decisions in relation to those themes of love or love versus manipulation and staying true to your character? Well, I think my strongest choice was the setting of it, to set it in that time period. Because if you do it in the more conventional, traditional way, 
and people are in more like more period costume, uh, it doesn't ring home as as strongly. Um, it seems like it's oh that happened in the past that would never happen now. It, it's an old fashioned story and it happened 150 years ago or something. Um, by putting it into modern context and uh, 1945, we are saying it happened very recently and it's still going on, it still happens. Um, the idea of American war brides, people being used like that, it's nothing, nothing new and it's, I think it still happens wherever there's a, a conquering uh, army or force, an occupying force, they will use the local population in, as they want and abuse them like that. So I think that message is loud and clear. And um, the other thing I've tried to do is to be, uh, make the piece as naturalistic as possible in the performance. Um, the old-fashioned attitude of opera was what they call park and bark. You walk on and you stand there and you sing. And acting is more or less irrelevant. I've tried very hard with the operas that I've done. I've done three now for Opera Australia to uh, really examine the psychology of the characters and then to follow that through with the acting and the gestures and the whole staging to make it as natural as possible because the tunic is one of those people who helped to create naturalistic, um, what, what they called verismo opera. It wasn't meant to be park and the bark and just spectacle. Um, it, was meant, it was meant to be really, really true life stories. And those three I mentioned, Tosca, Madame Butterfly and La Boheme, are all very naturalistic stories and they're all true in the sense that um, something very like them has happened uh, again and again. So uh, Tosca is about, um, you know, um, wartime resistance and how the resistance is crushed by the occupying army and how Tosca is given the choice of sacrificing her, uh, her, her sexuality to the, to the oppressor uh, or saving, to save her lover's life, you know, a moral d dilemma. La Boheme is students living in a garret, um, starving and uh, falling in love and falling out of love, very naturalistic story. And Butterfly, as I say, is this, um, you know, the, the abused war bride. So they're all, they're not grand opera in the sense that Aida, for instance, is, you know, with thousands of camels and, <laughs> and all that sort of stuff. They are little, little stories, little naturalistic stories about very ordinary people. And that's one reason I'm glad to be doing this particular piece, because it brings it down to just 11 singers and 11 musicians, and it's not grand scale. So you don't have to have thousands of geishas dancing around and you know great processions of cherry blossom and all that stuff to make it look like grand opera. It's a much more naturalistic, domestic piece. And this particular production emphasizes that. Well, that is the end of part two of our interview with John Bell. Uh, please feel free to keep listening to it as it moves across the episodes or find another episode that may tickle your fancy. Thank you to Eltham College for letting us record here and thank you to Aaron Searle for providing the music. Please do not hesitate in emailing us a question at asidepodcast at outlook.com.